text for the sermon this Lord's Day is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Read these verses for you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We continue through 1 John. We come to chapter 4, verse 7, this Lord's Day. In answer to the question, why should we love? No doubt different answers would be given throughout society. Let me pose for you some of the possible answers to that question that you might hear. Why should we love? First of all, some might say because it is in our nature to love. You see, there is a measure of truth here. Having been made in God's image, a sinful man has not completely erased every vestige of that image of God. Although the image of God in man has been terribly defaced by sin, nevertheless, we can see, for example, in a mother's love for her child, a powerful quality of delight in the one that is loved, and even a self-denial for the welfare of that little one. There's nothing you want to do or that you can do that will raise the ire of a mother more than to attack one of her little hens, one of her children. You want to get on a mother's bad side simply attack that child. There is that bond of love that we see so closely in a mother's love. And that is a natural love which God has placed within us. However, in answer to the question, why should we love, we should note that the obligation to love is not ours simply because it is natural to do so, All of us are naturally inclined to covet as well. All of us are naturally inclined to tempers and to anger, to lust. Do we have an obligation to do so because we are naturally inclined that direction? Thus, the first response does not give the answer to our question, why should we love? Well, another possible response is forthcoming. Why should we love? Because it is good and noble to love. 
Now again, there is a measure of truth in this as well. However, this particular response makes love an end in itself. Why should we love? Because it's good to do so. Why is it good to do so? Because it's good to do so. You see, without a standard and a goal for love, the concept of love becomes simply an idol which we worship. And an idol with a different meaning to every single individual. If you go and ask ten different people, what is love? You'll probably come back with ten different responses. However, ask those same ten people whether they believe it is an obligation and duty to love, and you'll receive one response. Yes, they believe it's a duty to do so, but they don't know why. Nor do they know what genuine love really is. A third possible response to the question, why should we love? Because I must love in order to go to heaven. Who among us now would deny that all who go to heaven must know and practice love? However, one must also realize that our love is not what qualifies. It is not that which makes us meet to go to heaven. Love does in fact always accompany those who go to heaven, but our love does not in and of itself qualify us for heaven. For you see, dear ones, our love as sinful human beings is always tainted to varying degrees with sin. We can never offer to God in this life a perfect love, free of corruption and sin, free of idolatry, free of selfishness, free of jealousy, covetousness, and on and on we can go. Even though the first commandment is, the first and great commandment, Jesus said, is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. None of us can love God perfectly with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And yet, when we don't love God in that manner, it indicates that we love something more than we love God, which is the essence of idolatry. To place anything in the place of that supreme love that we should have for God, whether it's a husband or a wife or a child, If we would forsake the truth, if we would compromise the truth for the sake of a loved one, we do not love God supremely. We are all guilty of that in various ways. And the Lord approaches the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2.4 with that particular sin. You have left your first love. Dear ones, we have left our first love in many different ways. We cannot offer to God our love as the reason why we should be admitted into heaven. Nor has any sinful man ever perfectly kept the second great commandment given by Christ, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Again, we have contaminated our love for our neighbor by ignoring and neglecting our duty throughout the day to serve others as we serve and care for ourselves. And therefore, we must conclude with the Apostle Paul that before the bar of God's absolute justice, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 And that by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20 No, dear ones, our imperfect love in and of itself will never unlock the gates of heaven to us. And thus we should not exercise love thinking in our own mind. If I simply love God, God will receive and accept me as I am. You see, it was for this very reason that God sent His own Son into the world to redeem fallen sinners unto Himself. If we could make ourselves acceptable to God, then Jesus Christ lived and died in vain. He came for no reason if we could do it ourselves. Does the Bible teach? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who love? No. A thousand times, no. To the contrary, Paul declares, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Love is indeed a fruit of the Spirit. And yes, I would say even an essential fruit of the Spirit, which God will grow in the life of every Christian. But our imperfect love for God or our perfect love for our neighbor is not the basis upon which we are accepted before the bar of God's justice. Well, we have briefly eliminated some possible responses to the question, why should we love? Before the remainder of our time this Lord's Day, we will be considering the reasons given by the Apostle John to that same question. Why should we live? Or why should we love? <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, you will recall, we considered together the obligation to love one another in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, as it specifically applies to Christian unity. Today we continue the same general theme Namely, the duty for Christians to love one another. But today, considering the reasons given by the Lord Himself for that obligation, God is simply being a very good and faithful parent by giving us reasons why we should love. As parents... You may not be able always to give reasons to your children why they should do what they should do. They may be too young to understand. A six-month-old six child isn't going to understand if you lay out the reasons why he should not throw a temper tantrum. He's not going to comprehend, be able to, to process that information. But as he grows, you should always 
with all of your children, dear ones. You should always instruct and give reasons as you are able to your children as to why they should obey rather than simply demanding obedience, authoritatively demanding it, shouting out orders like a drill sergeant. You see, there was the use of the rod in your home, parents, the use of the rod in your home without patient, loving instruction may for a time bring reluctant, reluctant outward conformity to a standard within the home, but it will never bring about a sincere desire and earnest love within the child to obey that standard. And God as our Heavenly Father gives us uncompromising duties which we are to obey. And one of them is to obey the, the bre- or to love the brethren. But through his inspired prophet, the Apostle John, he also patiently instructs us and gives us reasons why we are to love one another. And so let us consider those reasons together. This Lord's Day, I give you the three reasons from these verses. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. The first reason why we should love one another is because God Himself is love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God not only exercises love, but God, as to His essential nature, is love. God is the fountain and the origin of love. In Him is found an infinite and boundless supply of love. From that love flows His grace and His mercy that is extended to us in Christ Jesus. As we consider this truth that God is love as being the first reason why we are to love one another, we must avoid the snare of the universalists who take such a truth as God is love And they twist it to their own destruction by affirming that because God is love, He can never send anyone to such a place as hell. Thus, they form a God of their own imagination. A God which has not revealed Himself in such a way in in the Word of God. One which they have concocted themselves in their own mind. One which is comfortable and pleasant to them. But He's not the God that's revealed in the Scripture. For we find in the Word of God, God not only reveals Himself as love, but we find in Hebrews 12.29, God says that He is a consuming fire. We find in 1 John 1.5, God is also light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. 
Thus, the love of God, dear ones, is not inconsistent with his holy wrath and his righteous indignation toward the wicked, as we shall soon see. As we consider the fact that God is love, the question arises, who are the objects of God's love? Who does God show love toward? And again, there are three responses, three answers to this question. First of all, the principal and chief object of God's love is God himself. God himself. This is an absolute necessity in God. If the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, can God love anything more than He loves Himself? Of course not. For to do so would make God Himself an idolater. For God to delight in Himself and to seek His own good is the most holy and righteous inimaginable. And for God to seek his own glory as the ultimate end of all that he does in creation, in providence, in redemption, and in judgment is absolutely necessary. His glory is the chief end of man, the chief end of all things. Revelation 4.11 declares, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. I ask you, whose good is more holy and right than God's? From all eternity, when all there was was the divine triune God, the three persons of the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mutually and perfectly loved one another. Nor was there any sense of inadequacy or incompleteness of love within the Godhead which formed the reason for man's creation. God, dear ones, was not lonely for man's fellowship, nor did he have some unmet need. Enjoyment and perfect communion in love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the second object of God's love, moving from God Himself, the second object of God's love is His creation. Psalm 145.9 The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are are over all his works. 
Listen closely, dear ones, to what I'm about to say. There's much confusion, I believe, at times in these distinctions. But God granting mercy, we will, we will be able to understand these distinctions from His Word. God loves even the wicked in this sense. As they are His creation. As He created all men, whether righteous or wicked, as they are His handiwork, He loves all men. Jesus says in Luke 6:35 and 36, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. <clears throat> you see, as his creation... God demonstrates His love in that He provides for all His creation. He preserves them and even restrains men, wicked men, from becoming as wicked as they otherwise would become apart from that restraining power of God. You remember in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, that God restrained Abimelech from laying a hand upon Sarah, Abraham's wife. There we find these words, And God said unto him, that is, unto Abimelech, in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. God restrains wickedness. That's certainly a demonstration of love. We find in Romans chapter 1, many times that as a demonstration of his illustrating the same point, that God does restrain sin in man, but he also turns man over to their desires. But we find three times that it says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to their desires. What do we call that when God does not give men over to their desires? His restraining power. Again, an act of His love for His creation. You see, this is called the love of benevolence which God has for all His creation, saint and sinner alike. And the third and final object of God's love that I will focus upon this Lord's Day is His elect in Christ Jesus. For out of God's mere good pleasure, God set His love upon certain sinners that equally deserved His wrath and condemnation as did all other sinners. And God chose them in Christ Jesus before the world began that they should be holy and without blame before Him. In Ephesians 1.4 You see, dear ones, this, God's love for His elect, is a discriminating love. 
a discriminating love which God has for them alone. <clears throat> Who are not limited to one tribe, tongue, or nation, even as we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, very familiar portion of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The world, in this particular verse, does not indicate every single individual that has ever lived within the world, but rather indicates that God loves all those of His elect from every tribe of people and nation, and therefore has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in their place. Mr. George Gillespie, who was a Scottish minister and learned commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, has observed concerning this text, <clears throat> the world which God loved is not divided into believers and unbelievers, but by the world is meant the elect of all nations. And this whole world is subdivided into its parts by the word whosoever. That is, whether Jew or Gentile, whether barbarian or Scythian, whether bond or free. The Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life for his sheep, according to John chapter 10. According to the same, according to the same chapter, he has laid down his life for his friends. We find that he has laid down his life for his church in Ephesians 5. And this special love that God has for his people is efficacious, it is omnipotent, it is all-powerful, and it accomplishes salvation for all those who were so chosen in Jesus Christ. For if Jesus Christ came and He suffered and died and suffered hell for every single individual, then those individuals who never receive Him and avail themselves of that mercy and grace suffer twice. The penalty is paid twice. It was paid up to the Lord Jesus Christ in Him suffering for them and then they suffer again in hell. But we find the Scripture teaching that Christ has laid down His life for His sheep. Interestingly, in that particular chapter, John chapter 10, when He says, the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep, He says to the Pharisees, but you are not My sheep. You are not My sheep. Thus, when the Scripture says that God loves the righteous, in Psalm 146.8, we find those words, the Lord loveth the righteous. But the Scripture also says that God hates the wicked. As we find in Psalm 11.5, the wicked and him that loveth violence, his, that is, God's soul, hateth. 
how do we reconcile the fact that we've just said that God loves all of his creation? Well, this type of love is not the love of benevolence for all of his creation without any distinction. This love and this hatred is an approbating and approving love which he has for those who are in Christ Jesus who are viewed as righteous in Christ. But on the other hand, he has a disapproving hatred for those who are not his people as they are viewed as wicked and forever alienated from God. As Paul says in Romans 9.13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so God can love the wicked, as being his creation, but at the same time, he can hate the wicked as they are the very enemies of God. So we see the first reason we are bound to love one another is because God himself is love and exercises that love toward himself, toward his creation, and toward his elect. God's love, dear ones, which you show for one another is an unmistakable evidence that you are born of God. That is what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. You see, without that family characteristic, love for the brethren without it being manifested in the life of a professing Christian, there is no assurance that one has God as his Father. It is one of the tests that the Apostle John gives in this letter, whereby we might have assurance of our salvation. Do you love the brethren? It's not simply a mere verbal profession. Yes, I love the brethren. But it is demonstrates and evidences itself in what you say and what you do and how you care for your brethren. Second main point this Lord's Day in answer to the question why is it our duty to love one another? Because God has revealed His love for us in Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-11 through 11, reveal to us <clears throat> this point. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see, while the origin of love is in the nature of God, the manifestation of love is in the sending of His Son into the world. 
as we look at these verses this Lord's Day, we ought not to understand that our duty to love rests simply upon Christ's example, however. As important as Christ's example of love is to us, in reminding us of our duty to love the brethren, let us not simply leave our duty and understand our duty to flow from simply that example. Because we must carefully avoid the ancient heresy, listen closely, the ancient heresy of Pelagianism, wherein we look upon Christ's example, look upon his death, as a sort of moral lesson simply to follow. Pelagius, who was condemned as an heretic by the early church, believed man's fallenness is limited merely to following the bad example that Adam left for us, that Eve left for us, that those all around us leave for us, that that is the nature of our fallenness, simply following the bad examples that we see around us. You see, according to Pelagius, man has the moral ability to do whatever God requires of him in his law. He simply needs to break that cycle of following the sins of others and begin to follow the example of Christ's acts of obedience. Thus, according to Pelagius, Christ did not really offer his life as a ransom to save sinners who could not save themselves, but rather Christ provided a living, breathing, tangible example of love and obedience for Christians to follow. Pelagius taught man has the ability to to do what God requires. He just doesn't have the right example to follow apart from Jesus Christ. Now, I certainly do not want to minimize the power and effect of our example to be used for either good or evil, whether in the lives of our children or with the brethren. Certainly, we lead others to Jesus Christ or we lead others from Jesus Christ by the way we practice our faith. And I would never minimize that truth. But dear ones, our problem is much deeper than merely breaking bad habits. We and our children and even little Owen who is to be baptized this Lord's Day are all predisposed inherently to evil. We all sinned in Adam and have a sinful nature. We need more than a good example to follow. We need a new heart. We need a a, a perfect righteousness which comes only from Jesus Christ. We need the forgiveness of all of our sins for having rebelled against the Lord our God. And thus we see from these verses, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, 
we see our duty to love rests upon Christ's grace and mercy. Beloved, it is one thing to look at the historical account of Christ's death as an unrelated bystander to simply see this man dying upon a cross. But it's something altogether different to realize as you look at that historical event that Christ suffered and died and took upon Himself our sins to understand it was your sin and mine that put Him there. To understand that He suffered what He did for you and me personally. He didn't suffer and die for a nameless group of humanity. A faceless group of humanity. He died and suffered for you and me. He suffered for His elect by name. You see, that changes. That turns around altogether as we look at that historical event. It makes it something more than just a nice story. We see very personally what the living God, what it cost Him to show His love. What it cost the Father to give up His Son. What it cost the Son to redeem us. We see the sacrifice of love and understand that's me that deserved to be there. Why did He do so? 1 John 4.9 says that we might live through Him. What is? And that simply is eternal life. That we might live through Him. What is eternal life? <clears throat> eternal life, dear ones, is simply to glorify God by loving and enjoying communion with Him for all eternity. We need to understand continually. We need to reflect upon this truth throughout the week that the end of our salvation is not our justification, adoption, and sanctification. The end of our salvation is communion with Jesus Christ. You see, God redeemed us, justified us, adopted us, and sanctifies us in order that we might enjoy forever communion with Him. That's the end to which all of these other blessings point. Do you understand that to be the end of your salvation? Is your Christian life grown cold? Is your life in the faith not as exciting 
not as fervent as it was at one time? You see, it's so easy to lose perspective and to, and to forget that the essence of our salvation is to commune with God. And when we become busy and our cares of this life turn our attention from that fact, we ignore and neglect communion with the Lord every day. And when we understand, dear ones, the love of Christ, it constrains us to love God and to love our neighbor like nothing else can do. You know, the fear of God does motivate us to obey God. To know that God is a consuming fire does motivate me to, to obey the Lord. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like the love of God in motivating and moving me to love and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I reflect upon the love which Christ has shown for me, it humbles me. It drives me to my knees. And like a little child, I come to my Father and profess, how could you love a wretched sinner like me? Because I know my heart better than anyone. I know the sins that plague me. How, God, could you love one like me? When I understand that God poured out His infinite wrath upon His only begotten Son, to try to understand that would I pour out my wrath upon my only begotten Son in order to rescue a hardened criminal that was on death row, a murderer, a rapist, Would I rescue that person by sending my son to die in his place in order to make him my son? So you see, this love is incomprehensible. Such love compels me to joyful and thankful obedience like nothing else can do in my life. I was gripped as I read... This excerpt from a letter by the last Scottish martyr, James Rennick, martyred at the age of 26 years old, hunted, chased, a price upon his head because he was faithfully proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ in a Scotland that did not want to hear the gospel. For five years, he ran back and forth, miraculously escaping the hands of the dragoons, the soldiers that sought to capture him. Slept night after night in the moss, outside, in the rain. Even those who gave him shelter and food and clothing could suffer the loss of their own lives for giving him those things. This was the Scotland. This is what he was undergoing at this time. But listen. Listen to the testimony of one who had come to understand the love of Jesus Christ. 
He says, As love unto him makes his cause precious, so where that is, nothing will be thought too costly to bestow upon the cause's account. What will love not undergo? What will love not forego for the beloved's honor? We need no more to commend this common cause unto us than this. It is Christ's cause. And seeing His glory is concerned in it, it is our honor to be concerned with it. So also love to that lovely one or an uptaking of His loveliness which cannot but beget love unto Him maketh His yoke easy. Love is an oil to our wheels to make them run swiftly and lightly the way of His commandments. O oh, love makes obedience easy and pleasant work for the command binds the conscience and love gains the affections. So when conscience and inclination go together, it must needs be an easy work. The more that Christ is rejected and despised by others, the more to be beloved by His own. Love despises, yea, I may say, wishes for difficulties to get itself shown. Oh, to understand the love of Christ as some of His faithful witnesses and martyrs have understood it in days gone by. And dear ones, we will never understand it unless we spend time upon our knees crying out to God that He would reveal to us such great love. Help us to understand that love, the breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ. We'll not understand it by ignoring, neglecting the means of grace. We'll only come to comprehend in a small way that great love as we spend time before Him. <clears throat> Note also, dear ones, from our text, the duty to love rests upon the priority of God's love. In 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply meaning satisfaction. God was satisfied with the death of Christ and therefore has forgiven us our sins. You see, dear ones, God's love is antecedent to our love and is the very cause of our love for God. For we find in Romans 5.10, God loved us while we were yet His enemies and not His friends. We find in, in Romans 4.5, God's love is declared to be upon us when we were yet ungodly. With the Apostle Paul, I declare concerning myself and each one of us can say the same thing. 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Beloved, if God has set His love upon you in Christ, can that love ever be altered in the slightest? Can God's love ever change? Can His love grow for you? Can His love increase? Can it decrease? Absolutely not. For He loves you in Christ Jesus. His love for His Son would have to change before His love for you could possibly change. Furthermore, God did not love you knowing the best about you. He loved you knowing the very worst about you while you were His enemies, while you were ungodly. And so understand, beloved, God's love is unchangeable and it is efficacious. That is, that it accomplishes what He has purposed it to accomplish, and that is your salvation. And nothing in this world can separate you from the love of Christ. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, when we have shown such love, or when we have been shown such love, we are obligated to show that same kind of love to one another. You remember the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, where we find there the king settling accounts with his servants and he finds one that owes him thousands of of talents of gold. And there we find that because this servant pleads with the king to be merciful, he is forgiven all of his debt. But that same servant goes out and does not bestow the mercy which he was shown, but exacts a harsh penalty upon his fellow servant who owes him comparatively less. First John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If we understand the love of God, it is this that moves us and motivates us. It is the reason why we love one another. And finally, the last reason given by John why we are to love one another is because God loves others in and through us. In 1 John 4.12 No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. How does God demonstrate His love to you, beloved? Certainly, He does does so through His Word, through His Spirit. He does so through all of His unmerited gifts and graces which He has bestowed upon you, both of a physical and of a spiritual nature. But I submit to you, He also does reveal His love to you through the very tangible means of encouragement, comfort, mercy, instruction, counsel, help, 
assistance, time, money, energy, and even correction given by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, John says, in this regard, no man hath seen God at any time. Thus, how does God manifest Himself in His love? No man has seen God at any time. John's point is simply this. If God is to be seen, if a manifestation of His love is to be evidenced, it will be through your mouth, it will be through your words and through your deeds. Although Jesus was the absolute unique manifestation of God to man, nevertheless, God is manifested through us in our love for the brethren. That is why such visible signs of love and unity, according to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 in His high priestly prayer, these kinds of visible signs of love and unity will draw the world to believe in Christ. It is our duty to love because God must be seen in our lives. For a mere profession of orthodoxy is absolutely meaningless unless God is loving others through us. What an absolutely awesome thought to contemplate that God has chosen to be seen in sinners like you and me. What condescension that God would love through a vessel like you and me. We who are weak and sinful, we who fall on our face time and time again, God has chosen to love through us. Now, God could have chosen to love through the angels. He could have had perfect love simply to manifest His love through the angels. Perfect servants. Not to manifest His love through sinners like you and me. Why has He chosen to do so? Because when He loves through you and me, He gets the glory. He only gets the glory. Obviously, in the case of the angels, He gets the glory also. But in this case, it is very conspicuous that we do not have love in and of ourselves. And if we are able to love one another as God has commanded, it is not because we can pat ourselves on the back because we have the ability to do so. It is because God has given us that love and shown us that love. In this last verse, it says, in this way is love perfected. In this way, love is perfect. Well, what does that mean? Well, it certainly does not mean that we can exercise perfect love in this life contrary to the Wesleyan error that we can reach a stage of perfection of love in this life. It does not mean that. It does not mean either that God's love toward us grows and becomes perfect in this life. For God's love, as we said, knows no degrees. But what it does mean is this, that God's love is perfected. It is completed when it is not simply a profession, but when it actually changes a self-centered sinner into a self-sacrificial saint. When we actually realize that we are God's mouth, we are God's eyes, we are God's hands, and we are God's feet. 
and use them to love the brethren and to show mercy toward one another. In this way, God's love is perfected in us. O Lord our God, fill us with this love and let us in conclusion cry out to God with the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. This was Paul's prayer, let it be ours, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess to Thee our imperfect love. We confess to Thee, Lord, that our love has grown cold, that we have left our first love. O Lord our God, we ask that Thou would perfect Thy love through our life and in our life by causing us not simply to profess that love, by causing us, Lord, to live that love, what we say, do, what we think. We ask, Father, that we would not be those who profess to be orthodox in our faith, who can argue and debate flawlessly what we believe, But when it comes to expression of love, we are sadly lacking. But Father, we we know that faith without works is dead. And love without works is lifeless as well. We ask our Father that Thou would give to us a love for the brethren. And not only the brethren in this congregation, but for all of those who are brethren. We ask our God that Thou would give to us the grace to understand and know the boundless depths of Christ's love for us. That we would not be satisfied with, with a, an elementary and foundational understanding of Christ's love. But Father, that that love would cause our burden to become light. The yoke of Christ to be easy obedience to Thy law and whatever we must sacrifice, even our own life, that it would become easy because of our love for Thee. O Father, we do pray that Thou would be with us as a congregation, that Thou would show forth Thy loving kindness to us, that Thou would minister to every need that's present this day. We do bring before Thee our lives and offer to them offer them to thee as living sacrifices that thy, thou might use them for thy glory and we ask these things in the name of Christ amen this reformation audio track is a production of stillwater's revival books you are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.